and welcome to the Hearsay Sidebar, a podcast where the Hearsay team gets together around the microphone to talk about the legal side of what's in the news. The Hearsay Sidebar is a podcast by Lext Australia, a legal innovation company that makes the law easier to access and easier to practice. Hello listeners, the episode of Sidebar that you're about to hear is a snippet from a much longer interview on our CPD podcast, Hearsay the Legal Podcast, which can be found at htlp.com.au. If you're interested in hearing the full interview, head over to our website and sign up for a subscription. We've been talking about pre-completion due diligence, we've been talking about pre-signing due diligence, but really they're very different things. Sometimes you might conduct due diligence before signing your sale agreement. Sometimes you might conduct it before completing. Often you'll do both. Chris, tell us a little bit about why you might be completing due diligence before exchange and why you might be completing due diligence before completion and what those processes might look like. Yeah, sure. Your usual transaction involves roughly four phases, I would say. Roughly first phase term sheet. At that point, you've got an interested vendor and an interested purchaser. For larger transactions, you might have a very motivated vendor running a sale process with a bunch of prospective purchases. And then the second phase is really your due diligence phase, a phase where before there is any binding legal commitment, although that's not always the case, but usually before there's a binding legal commitment, parties can jump into a data room and understand a little bit about the business and the asset before before they sign their loan away and acquire it. The third phase is the transaction documents phase. So that's the signing phase that you've spoken about, David. And the fourth phase is completion. So satisfying the conditions precedent in the binding legal agreement and getting to completion. A transaction that involves really good due diligence really involves some form of the due diligence process going almost all the way through that process completing simultaneously with completing, there's usually not much process in continuing to understand a business or an asset that you already own. Although again, that's not always the case. There may be particular circumstances where for particular reasons you wish to complete that understanding. And then you've got the loathsome situation of completion subject to the post-completion deliverables. Yes, exactly. And what you're looking for in those situations is different. The term sheet sort of phase and prior to signing, you often have buyers who don't know the business or underlying asset learning about it in detail, getting themselves up to the level of an understanding of the business so that they can be confident in the price they're putting forward and confident in their terms. So at that phase of the due diligence, it's really a very steep learning curve, understanding really what the business is, what it does, how it works, how it makes money, hopefully. And each purchaser or prospective buyer will be looking at it from the perspective of the little or big things that they can do to take that business and make it even more profitable in their hands. Whereas at the later stage in a transaction, certainly post-signing legal docs and in the lead up to completion, you might be just making sure that nothing has changed in the business that you've understood from an earlier phase of your due diligence, making sure that nothing has changed before you complete the transaction. Yes, absolutely. Because I suppose at each of those stages, 
the relevance of that information is changing, isn't it? At that term sheet level, it's really about pricing information. You can't make a sensible bid, especially in a competitive process like you described, without some of that due diligence being completed. The traditional conception of M&A pricing is it's the value of the enterprise plus some share of the synergies you expect to gain from buying it. How do you know what those synergies are or what the underlying value of the business is unless you learn a bit about it? Then as we continue through, we're looking at issues like the one you described with that medical business, regulatory risks, things that might have to be done in order to complete, and further and further on. And that leads me on to my next question for you, Chris, which is, what kind of factors are we considering in due diligence, legal due diligence, that is, the kind that our listeners might be conducting? Some of them are more obvious than others. The underlying financials of the business, its tax affairs, intellectual property is a common one, especially with the deal activity in the tech market that we were describing earlier. But there's some other factors that you might look at in due diligence as well, isn't there? There are, yes. You're looking all up and down the business for legal risk, but you're looking from two particular perspectives, really. From the first and most important perspective, you're looking to understand what it is that you're acquiring. So how does this business operate? How does it make money? Does it need leases to do that? Does it need people to do that? How many leases does it have to do that? How many people does it have to do that? And then dropping down a level, what are the lease terms? What are the employment terms? What does all of that mean for the cost of this business in its ordinary operations? You'll be looking for traditional legal risk, so litigation. You'll run a bunch of searches on the company to understand that it's been in business for 20 years and has not been involved in any disputes or it's been in business for six months and is currently in 14 different disputes in every court in the land. Obviously, two very different risk profiles in those two different circumstances. But the other category that you're looking at is the transaction element. So if we were to acquire these assets in the way contemplated, either a share sale or an asset sale, what do we need to do to validly pick those assets up and transfer them across. And that's a very different and much more specific set of searching and due diligence. In those circumstances, you're looking for particular provisions in particular well-known agreements to achieve those outcomes. So obviously, leases will involve assignment provisions. So before a lessee can assign a lease, what the lessee needs to do will be written into the lease, usually obtain landlord's consent to any assignment. And most leases will contain a provision that says if there's a change in control of the lessee, that's a breach of the lease. The landlord likes to know who they are dealing with when they grant their leases. And so if there's a change in who they're dealing with, that's technically a breach of the lease. And so if the transaction is a share sale, you will need landlord consent in order to achieve what you wish, which is an assignment of those shares from the vendor to the purchaser. And so you're looking for two different things all the way through the due diligence process. So usually the way that comes about is you start with a due diligence checklist that from a legal perspective commences with the assets that you're looking at. So what are the assets? Are they shares? Are they the underlying business? If they're shares, who has title to them? You drill into that. ASIC searches on the company itself, cross-checking the corporate register against the ASIC register to identify discrepancies to make sure that when you buy the 1,400,000 shares that you think 
are issued by the vendor company, that you're actually getting 100% of the vendor company. But that due diligence checklist will then roll through all of the different areas that you ordinarily look at in a business. So it will range from leases, as we've discussed, it will cover employees, it will cover regulatory issues or problems if you're in a highly regulated industry. It will often cover tax, even in the legal due diligence, just to make sure that there are no outstanding legal problems arising from the company's tax affairs. Often in the mid-market, you've got very busy proponents, very busy business owners, and you often find that the company is well-run, well-managed, and completely up-to-date with all of its tax affairs. But occasionally, you might find a business that is well-run, well-managed, but has a few outstanding filings, and you certainly wish to know that before you acquire that business. But continuing on with our list, you then are looking at things like litigation, intellectual property is a big one, particularly with tech companies. Yeah, I think we've talked on the show before about intellectual property due diligence in tech, especially in software companies, and how to manage open source software because traditionally the due diligence process for intellectual property has been to ensure that the company owns everything that it's developed, that it has the ability to deliver title. But of course, open source modules, open source software is a essential part of really any modern software development. And increasingly, lawyers have to be aware of the MIT and other open source licenses that govern that open source software to be satisfied that Yes, the intellectual property that's being transferred or that the company that's being sold owns has some open source elements, but it's subject to a license that allows that to be transferred on commercial terms. Now, there's something interesting about your answer there, Chris, about the kinds of things that you look at, which really jumped out at me. One was that the risks that you might expect to identify from a particular search or a particular category of questions might be relevant to another category in the sense that We do litigation searches, we do court searches to identify if a company is subject to any pending litigation. And of course, that's a pretty obvious risk. If a company is subject to a live damages claim, there might be a pretty big liability on the horizon. But even if it's been the subject of historical litigation, as you were describing, if a company has been in business for a couple of years and has a dozen adverse action proceedings in the Fair Work Commission, that might suggest that there are cultural issues in the business that you might want to address or might want to be satisfied are being addressed before you proceed with the transaction. And that really leads me to people risks, the kind of due diligence issues that come up with individuals, especially in an industry like professional services, where the whole business really is the individuals and the relationships between them and between their customers. We've worked on some notable professional services transactions. How do you do due diligence on people? Yeah, that's another great question. And I think it really draws out the two ways that lawyers and non-lawyers would look at due diligence. So starting proposition, most business owners would say the real value in their business sits with their people. And If you take that by extension, the real value in two businesses together sits with those two groups of people working and operating together. From a legal due diligence perspective, traditionally, you would look at all of the employment contracts in the target company, look at their employment terms, again, from the perspective of understanding what it is that you are acquiring 
how much do those employees get paid, what are their leave arrangements, what are the super arrangements, where does the super get paid, all of those sorts of things. And then from the perspective of in most transactions, most bidders wish to make an employment offer to all employees on terms no less favourable than the ones they currently enjoy. And so making sure that you, from a bidder's perspective, can actually do that to achieve happy employees coming across into the new structure. Traditional due diligence in non-labour intensive industries might stop there, but that probably leaves a hell of a lot of value on the table. It really would make sense to have a bit more due diligence on the sort of people who are involved in the target company, what their culture is, and how that is going to interplay or how that will translate and how that will succeed in the culture of the new organisation. The figures around m historically aren't necessarily great in terms of successful M&A deals. On their original definitions of success, most M&A deals fail. I think the Harvard Business Review says most M&A deals erode rather than create value. Exactly. And I think my perspective on having watched this occur for 20 odd years and really never quite understood how the single biggest valuable asset that most people see in a business is the people and how they interact with each other to produce value is really left to a post-transaction integration issue. And so you pick these two disparate groups of people up, plop them down into a room together and say, now get on and work towards this new common goal. And you can start to see why in those circumstances that any reasonable sized business takes two to three years for synergies to be seen, realised and exploited. And as that Harvard review that you just referenced found, most businesses erode value, but most CEOs then explain the success of the business or the merger by slightly different criteria or criteria that move over time Mm. is probably the politest way to put it. You've been listening to the Hearsay Sidebar. Sidebar is our fun, free podcast about legal news. But if you're an Australian lawyer, you can sign up to the original Hearsay the Legal podcast at htlp.com.au. That's htlp.com.au to get all 10 of your CPD points by listening to entertaining interviews with lawyers, judges and other leading figures in the law on demand, on the go and at an unbeatable price. That was HTLP for Hearsay the Legal podcast. Hearsay Sidebar is produced by Ross Davis with help from Jacob Malby. Make sure you follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you'll be notified whenever we release a new episode. If you like the show, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast platform because it helps other law geeks just like you find us. Thanks for listening.